This week, Charles Schwab. We travel to San Francisco to sit down with the discount brokerage pioneer at his company's headquarters. With a reported net worth of nearly $8 billion, the entrepreneur opens up about his lifelong battle with dyslexia. But I still, to this day, I still have a tough time with the alphabet. How golf changed his life and the positive change he's making with the sport today. Well, I think all sports sort of gave me self-confidence that I was pretty good at something. Plus, with his new memoir out, the 82-year-old explains how the Great Depression shaped him. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. All right, so I wanted to start off by talking about sports before getting into your life and career. Um, Tell about your grandpa and the Golden Gate Fields racetrack. Oh, my goodness. Well, that was simply his joy in life was to drive Sacramento, where we lived, down to... uh, to, to San Francisco, but on the way he always wanted to stop at the Golden Gate Fields, and uh, he loved to gamble. He was a lawyer, and uh, part of his, I don't know, thoughts were I could make a fortune with these horses. So I learned through him how to make a two-dollar bet, and I learned also that it's impossible to make a lot of money on a two-dollar bet, even if you win, which is very seldom. The odds are always 10 or 12 times against you because there's 11 or 12 other horses running against your bet. So I learned a lot, though, as a kid uh, about the odds. How passionate were you about basketball growing up? Basketball, I loved basketball, and and I played all the way through it. In fact, I loved all sports, frankly, but basketball was one of my more favorite ones. The unfortunate thing, I didn't grow tall enough. I got to 5'9", and I stopped out there, and the other guys went on to 6, 6'4", whatever. And so I played B basketball, and that was a lot of fun. But then I finally said, if I can't play varsity, the heck with it. I'm going to go into golf and tennis and some other things that I can be good at and get on the golf team, get on the tennis team. What are some of your earliest caddying memories? Oh, those were great experiences. Not only did I make money, which money was quite important to me as a kid because I didn't have much, uh, but I also hung around, usually it was always men, on a Saturday morning. Uh, I could learn about their conversations, what they were thinking about, what they were talking about, usually funny jokes. But I learned a little bit about golf and golf etiquette, and so that really gave me a lot of stimulus to really work on my golf game You know, when I was 15 years of age. Why was tennis and golf, or why were they confidence boosters for you early on? Well, I think all sports. When I got into sports, I was you know, played you know grammar school, whatever, any sport that was available. And that really helped my confidence um, because I was pretty good at it, where in schooling, I wasn't particularly great at it. And uh, I was on the golf teams, and I was on the tennis teams, and, and I won a lot of matches. and and sort of gave me self-confidence that I was pretty good at something. You mentioned kind of what you learned from caddying. Uh, What do you think over the years the sport of golf has taught you? Oh, there's so many uh, comparisons with life uh, that go on in golf. It's whether it's practice makes perfect, uh, whether you make a a shot into the out of bounds, uh, you get a a shot over again, you get a reprieve, uh, start over and work hard on it. Uh, 
working with friends, the competitions, the handling of uh, pressure, uh, the competition among teams, and, and I was somewhat of a leader of the, the, the golf team at the time. And uh, You were the captain in uh, high school, I was for, right? for one year, I was a captain, and that was keep the enthusiasm up and keep the other guys in the team highly jacked up, and we won, we won a number of events. And uh, one in particular was the year I was, I think I was a junior, when I shot the lowest score, and we won the CIF championships in Southern California, and my friend Alan Geiberg was already state junior champion. He was clearly number one in our golf team, and I was probably number three at the time. But I shot the lowest score that particular day. And our team won, not only I won the individual, but the team won the, the whole team award. And that was really, uh, for me, was uh, pretty important because I think it's how I eventually got into college. How responsible do you think? I think uh, it was invaluable is? that I was a pretty good golfer. That uh, for I getting had, you into Stanford. Yeah, for getting Stanford, I applied to two colleges, Stanford and University of California. Fortunately, I got into both. One was a state school, and uh, my grades were okay. My SATs were horrible, and uh, but I think but golf, what's horrible? Well, I don't know what the scores are now, but I, I, I don't think I was. I think it was probably. I don't even can remember. It was, I don't think it was 600. I was, I, when you're dyslexic, and I didn't know that at the time, I have even difficulties reading instructions on a test. Is it a double negative? Negative, I spend more time worried about what are they really asking me than I did on the actual answers to the questions. So anyway, it's, that's a long story. We don't need to get into that one. The connections be between golf and investing, in your opinion, are what? Well, uh, you know, it's, it, the rules. Uh, golf has very precise rules. Uh, investing has rules also, uh, rules of engagement. It's all about investing. It's all about what happens in the world of capitalism and so forth, and, and innovation and uh, creativity and those kinds of things. Certainly in golf, there's those components too. You see some of the greatest golfers today, whether it's Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson, uh, creating shots that you never would have seen before. They did it, but they had the skill to do it. But it came from practice. And so you were saying you applied to schools, two schools, University of California. Yeah. And uh, uh, Stanford, and you thought. Well, golf. Uh, the story was, uh, my freshman, uh, the freshman team at Stanford, played the high school golf team. I went to Santa Barbara High School, and we played them when uh, in that spring. And the golf coach from Stanford obviously watched the the match going on. I played extremely well that day, and I am sure I don't have proof of it that he must have said. I think I'd like to have this kid on the golf team. They didn't have scholarships back then because the tuitions then were only $250 a quarter. They were pretty, pretty low, to say the least. But I think the reason why I got into the school wasn't because of my SATs, because of my incredible capability of golf. Uh, I've seen you many years <laughs> yeah, playing right. in the uh, AT&T oh, yeah. Pebble Beach program. How about your fondest memory from there? Making the cut. That's what we all try to achieve is make the cut. And I've made it uh, three times now. And the reward is you get an umbrella that says, when you open it up, it says, I made the cut. <laughs> so that's what you really work hard for. Uh, it's all about pride. 
Anybody noteworthy you've played with there that uh, oh, I particularly played with, stick I played out? with Mickelson quite a few times. Uh, you guys are close. Close friends, and he always comes over to the house for dinner nowadays. I don't play with him that much in the AT&T because he's playing with all the people that have the big signs up there. It's uh, the different commercial company. They pay him a lot of money for that hat. What's the typical dinner conversation when he's oh, over? Oh, we're talking generally about things in life. His kids, uh, we try to keep up to date with he and uh, Amy's kids, and they're going off to college and so forth. And you know, just what what has what's inspired what's uh, what's happened the last year, kind of thing. What was the best part of hunting with your dad growing up? I was brought up in this little valley town in Sacramento Valley uh, in California. And uh, the town was about 5,000 people, and he was a small town lawyer and uh, district attorney of the county. And so uh, we went bird hunting once or twice, but not much. But it gave me the inspiration later on in life to become, to aspire to hunting more than I did when I was a kid. What did you enjoy about it even back then that made you want to do it more? Well, one of the reasons why he would go duck hunting with some of his male friends at an invitation and he would shoot ducks, wild ducks. I got the job of picking the ducks. I think he gave me 50 cents a bird to pick. It'd take me nearly all day to pick a sack of ducks, but I really ended up loving to eat them. So that gave me the taste of this wild game. And I think to this day, I still enjoy sitting down to a, a wild duck in my plate. Uh, tell about what the Mexico trip entails. Well, I, every year now, it seems to be the last 10 or so years, I take sons and son-in-laws on that trip. We go down to Mexico and shoot uh, doves. The doves are really a nuisance to the farmers down there, so we go down there and help the farmers. And so we sort of spend three or four days shooting doves uh, in the morning and the afternoon. Margaritas are available after that. And so, and the wonderful Mexican people that we see and meet, uh, most of them, they get some of the extra birds that we shoot, and so the town gets a whole uh, level of new proteins from the birds. You mentioned uh, plucking the ducks and getting paid, you know, 50, cent a, 50 cents a bird when you were growing up. How about uh, name as many jobs as you can remember having when you were coming up? Oh, boy. I, there wasn't a job that I wouldn't take as a kid because I always want, I always had this ambition about having some money, buy my own bike or whatever it might be at the time, independence and such, because our family didn't have a lot. So money was spoken about a lot in the family, the lack thereof, because they all came out of the depression years. But my jobs, uh, whether it was picking walnuts, sacking walnuts as a young kid, uh, having a chicken farm, I did that a couple of different years and that was pretty interesting and informative. I did tractor driving, I did uh, working in the oil fields. I was uh, <laughs> hardly anything I didn't do. I worked one summer, which was really interesting, when in Chicago I worked on, on the railroad, I was a switchman. Uh, I tried to get a job as a taxi cab driver, but you can think how funny it was, uh, me showing up the first day being in Chicago and saying I'm applying for a job, but I didn't know where the airport was. So. <laughs> You can imagine getting in my cab that day because we didn't have Google Maps and those kinds of things then. We just had, had no where the airport was. Well, I didn't know where anything was, so and, they said no way. The so I got a job with the railroad. 
the railroad knew where they were going, so that was <laughs> I was a switchman on the railroad. What was that like? Uh, that was great fun, uh, but uh, unfortunately I worked the graveyard shift, but I learned a lot about that. It showed up at midnight and worked at eight in the morning. Uh, we did a lot of heavy work for a couple hours and we did, um, we slept a lot in the caboose <laughs> in those last few hours. <laughs> Fe feather bedding, I think we called it. What was uh, you driving a tractor on a sugar beet farm like? Oh, that was a great summer uh, doing that. It was a dollar an hour, oh, pardon me, a dollar a day. It's hard work. No, it was a dollar an hour, hard work. Get up, you have to start the engine on the, on the big uh, diesel engine, and that was really a, always an issue and putting it into gear and so forth. But uh, it was go one way down the field and the, the exhaust would be in your face. And you go the other way in the field, the wind would blow all the dust in your face. So it was a, a, a pretty smoky day. And you were the only English speaker. I was the only there, right? English speaking among uh, probably 30 or 40 uh, uh, Mexican uh, workers from, uh, from Mexico that would come up every year as uh, they were uh, annual workers. How do you think the Great Depression affected your parents? Oh, very negatively. They, they, they worried about money all their life, and, uh, and they never really enjoyed things. It, they couldn't sit down and enjoy things, and it was something that impacted me, and I said as a young kid, I said, I want to be as far away from that as I possibly can be, so I am committed to really work hard. I want to find out how people make money. I want to be a part of that group. So I read biographies uh, of famous people at the time who were successful, and it gave me incredible ideas of what I needed to do for my career. Why do you think your parents weren't able to enjoy things? Well, it was just instinctive to them at the time. Uh, everything was in a, in a budget format, and uh, uh, they took a few vacations, not many, and they were very limited on their budget no matter what were to happen, and uh, we were brought up in a small community where we didn't have a lot of fancy things. They had a, there was a golf club, that was nice, and there was a swimming pool where I learned how to swim. Outside of just wanting to make money, in what ways did it change your attitude? Well, I just thought that, you know, that life had too many great things to offer uh, if you had the resources to enjoy them. Uh, whether a round of golf uh, today now costs $200 a round. Back then it was a lot cheaper, but um, you know, all the different things we like to do in life, vacations and so forth, all certainly cost a lot of money. But, so we, as our family, was pretty limited. We, our vacation included we'd get in the car and we'd drive to maybe Yosemite with a uh, back then, they would, <laughs> the uh, air conditioner would be the thing hanging outside the window and the wind coming in. <laughs> and that was, back then, that was, those were luxuries then. So we'd drive to uh, Yosemite, which might be four hours away, and spend a night there and come back home. That was vacation. What do you think, uh, having witnessed their financial situation, uh, taught you about money? Well, obviously, gave me the whole sense of uh, being living within my means and making sure that I had adequate things and making sure I was always aspirational. How could I make and things and do it better than they might have?
And so that, and taking risk. They're trying to judge the risk reward thing with investing in your own business, as I did, or investing in, in companies. I love, I personally love investing in companies too, other than my own company. And I think your dad first got you interested in the market he, by showing you stock he, tables in, in the He paper. introduced me to the stock page in the local newspaper, and I glommed onto that, and I started following all these companies, particularly I followed the really small price things. I said, I can afford a $3 stock. You know, I, for my caddy fees, I know I can do that. So I started following the movement of them, and I said, hey, this is pretty cool. This, they go up and they go down, but maybe overall they'll go up. So I just, that was my first shot or first uh, introduction to what stocks were all about. Dyslexia. Um, you wrote in your book that for the longest time you just thought you were stupid for, for like, like 40, 40 Well, I didn't years. think I was stupid. Uh, I just thought I had a terrible time in reading things. I was particularly good at math. I was sort of advanced and all that stuff. Uh, and English, I was uh, really slow in. So what I gravitated towards, it was the greatest thing I'd ever done was start reading classic comic books. Because classics had pictures of all the illustrations of the various subject matters that are going on. And you read, I read every uh, classic comic book I could. So I was very much uh, uh, instilled in, in the classic books as such. I knew all the stories, whether it's Ivanhoe or Tale of Two Cities or uh, Moby Dick or things of that nature. I mean, the teachers were very impressed that I knew all this stuff. Uh, and I could pass a test in, in, in that literary discussion. But guess what? I was, it was all based upon my love of comic books. <laughs> How did your son's diagnosis cause you to look into... Well, I was 40, whatever, 43, 44, when he was diagnosed with exactly what I had as a kid. And I had all this similar problems. And Which were what? Dyslexia, basically, but I had never had it defined. There was no science around him when I was his age, when he was seven or eight. I mean, what what were the issues they identified that made you realize, oh, I, I, this is exactly well, what he I had mean. extreme difficulty in in reading and in writing and expressions. Um, his teachers said he needs remedial reading and and all the struggles that he went through. Uh, fortunately, I went to a, a, a nun school at the time, uh, the religious school, and these nuns, that's all they did was teach kids. And fortunately, they just beat things into me. I, but I still, to this day, I still have a tough time with the alphabet. It, how so? I just, if you ask me to put it out, I, can, I, can, I think I can do it, but even through school, I had a tough time memorizing things like that. In, That's what it just happens to a dyslexic. And that was why English was your hardest English subject. was very difficult, very difficult. I always had miserable class scores uh, in English or English literature. So I, I read an interview you gave where you said, if you look at the words, the cat crossed the street, you have to sound it out to get the meaning. Um, I do. How so? Well, with dyslexics, uh, for most 80% of dyslexics, it is simply that. It's, it's the um, taking 
word, which is code, and you look at code, like cat, C-A-T, that's C-A-T, that's code in writing, and you convert it then to sound in your brain and then to meaning. And you do the reverse when you're, you're writing and doing other things, uh, and it, the phonological processing is different for kids that have dyslexia. And it's, I don't know why, but that's the way we're, we're born. And, and you also said at one point to sit down in front of a blank piece of paper uh, and write something. At one point in your life, that was like one of the most oh. traumatic things you could Terrible. go through. Terrible. I could, you know, I'd sit down with, uh, in writing this book, most of this book, I've, I've dictated this, the whole thing out. But I couldn't sit down and write every word out of it. Either think too fast, or I couldn't write as fast as I think. I don't know what happens there. But processing. That was like lectures you attended in college, right? Yeah. I mean, you could either pay attention or write notes. But I can't not do both. both. You yeah. can't do both. And so that was, I learned that in college, actually. And I learned my good friends would take great notes. I could read their notes, and I could get a good grade in the class. But if you look at my notes, you couldn't understand them. Uh, something that seemed to be pretty cool that happened to you when you were back in school, I think it's your first year of business school, you have to write a case study. Um, fellow students were turning in papers as long as 10 to 12 pages. You turn in a two-page paper. Page and um, a half. What was the uh, teacher's response, and how was that an academic first for you? Well, they loved my paper. It was one of the four or five pick papers, and I, that really I was stunned to find out one, my paper was one of the... But I really knew the case, and, the, and I had a great conclusion on what should recommendation. And so I was very succinct in the, my re, you know, writing out the particular problem and then the solution, and they loved that. They liked brevity as opposed to a lengthy, you know, 10-page kind of thing. They didn't want to repeat. They wanted to have someone come up with a specific uh, recommendation. But it felt really good. I felt good. I said, oh, I can't believe it. It gave me all kinds of confidence. I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to make it through this school. What do you think uh, there's a higher percentage of dyslexics with criminal records? Well, that's a real problem because in school these kids lose their self-esteem. Kids that struggle and struggle and are, are bottom of the totem pole in the academics and they are smart they're not dumb, but they just can't read. And what happens is they move into other social things that are not agreed to by society. They get into alcohol or drugs or activity that, uh, because they're smart thinking about things, but they're not doing well in class. So they find other ways to uh, show their, their capabilities, I guess. And then they end up in jail. What have you tried to do on the philanthropic front over well, the years? Well, we've tried to help. to help a number of different ways, uh, and the studies are, yes, that some 40 or 50 percent of the men in, in prison are, start out in life as uh, dyslexics. And, and yes, that's a huge problem for, for society, that they didn't get enough attention as children to to deal with the issue, of the, and uh, they acted out in different ways and ended up in, in problems. Uh, high school assembly, 
when you're growing up, you're in in front of the school and have to give a speech. Uh, oh. Describe what you remember from the struggle. That first time, I, I thought I could remember everything. Um, I couldn't remember anything. You got up there and you get stage fright. Oh, the first word, you're just struggling and you're just, you're just getting sweating and you're breaking down and you're sort of, it's the worst experience you could ever have. And so, it happened to me a couple of times. Oh, it has? Yeah. Do you remember the other times just as well? Um, well, there were a couple of times very close to each other. I didn't do it again. <laughs> uh, overcoming shyness and developing people yeah. skills, yeah. you believe, has been a key to your success. Uh, how so? I knew it was essential for being successful in life to have a successful relationship or be whatever it might be my endeavor was and I always ended up with leadership roles as such so I had to be confident about you know my ability to speak in front of a group of people so that was really a, a challenge for me and I worked hard at it over time and, and you then I went to certain school about it eventually oh did you yeah what uh, how did that oh, help? I had a Eventually, I found a trainer that helped me enormously on how to handle myself uh, in a verbal way, verbal setting. What did the trainer teach you that well, made a difference? Well, he told me, number one, nobody knows what you're going to say, so you have permission to say anything you want to say, because <laughs> you don't know what I'm going to say next. That's a really a pretty profound thing. I always thought, gee, I, I knew what I wanted to say and I had to memorize it all. You can't. And you don't know what I'm going to say, so I, I simply I can say anything. And uh, if I don't remember something, that's just fine. I, just, I figure out the transition from one thing to another thing. And you don't know that I'm really inside just really wrenching to come up with the right word, but I'm not. W will you still get that way today? No, no, okay. no. Got it. Very easy and free with you now, right? Uh, you've said before some leaders are born with that skill, others uh, learn it with experience. Yeah, I How think it's you? learnable. I think it's learnable by most people. And the more you practice it, uh, the more confidence you get about it. It's okay. And the other part of the thing is make sure you smile. It's amazing how you can get away with so many things with a smile. <laughs> One of your strongest assets as an entrepreneur is apparently knowing your limits. Um, what would you say yours are and how have you tried to compensate for them well, over the years? In business life, is I have a clear vision most of the time about what we're about, what our purpose is. What, so my conceptual skills are at work there, I guess. Uh, my expertise skills might be the ability to make people feel good about things and ask the right questions, particularly of people who are really skilled in a different uh, arena and such, whether it's technology or marketing or personnel, HR activities. So making feel, people feel really good about their expertise, asking them for their opinion and, and honoring their opinion and taking their opinion and uh, having them be helpful in making a decision 
for the collective good of the team. Your early days in business, I think yeah. you briefly considered uh, being a CPA. You at one point enroll in San Francisco Law School, start attending classes. Why ultimately decide against both areas? Well, what happened was in uh, the early, uh, uh, late 60s, 70s, the market went into a terrible bear market. And anything related to the stock market was really trashed, in a sense. And I thought, how am I going to make a living in this area, working in this kind of environment? And so then the thought was, what will I do? Well, my grandfather was a lawyer, my dad was a lawyer, so I thought, well, maybe I'll go to law school. So I started going to law school at night. It took me about two weeks to figure out this was a dead end for me because I couldn't read all these damn books because of the issues we spoke about. And so I said, if I'm successful at something else, I can hire a good lawyer. So hence, I moved out of that, that, uh, that pursuit in a hurry. And same with the CPA? Uh, CPA was really when I was in school and I thought, uh, I knew I really wanted to get into the investment world. And I had all the credits for CPA kind of uh, examination, all that, but you need to work two years as a CPA in a CPA firm, sort of as a, you know, a, a learner. Uh, and I didn't, want to, I didn't want to invest that two years of time because I didn't think CPA work was what I really wanted to do in life. It was just too confining, too narrow, too, uh, way too narrow for me. Did you know even then you really wanted to start your own business? Uh, well, I never really had a couple of businesses. I had... Uh, because Schwab was your third well, business, right? Third or fourth, I don't know. I had a, a chicken business when I was a kid. I did all the various things that you need to do. I sold it and sold the product and produced the, whatever it was, uh, the chickens, the manure, the eggs, whatever it might have been. Uh, so I had some experiences there about it, what I call an integrated business early on as a kid. Uh, I knew I was a pretty good organizer about things, but I was not particularly great at uh, sort of specific things, that, uh, but I could hire those people who then work with me. So you, I believe, really admired Charles Merrill and him opening up investing to uh, the, the middle class in, investor. Well, I, I wasn't a great fan of his, uh, although I was a great fan of Merrill Lynch and, and certainly knew the company. Uh, but I really started out in my early part of my business when I really professional. I was a financial analyst. I was a stock market analyst uh, in finance, looking at companies and trying to analyze them. Worked for a small investment advisory company. We were trying to pick companies that would be the great growers of the future. So I learned from some people that were in that area. And that was my, that's how I thought you could create wealth, is finding great companies that had the answers for tomorrow, in technology, we'll say or whatever it might have been. And, and that's where, that was my first, uh, first real uh, deep interest. And so I wanted to be, and I was, a, a financial analyst. And it, it drove you crazy, the rates that uh, the, well, these companies were charging. Well, the company to... I worked for was a small company. We used brokers that would come in with ideas and so forth and try to sell us, because we were managing portfolios for individuals. It was sort of a, at that time, one of the independent advisory firms. It had a small number of accounts, probably a couple of hundred accounts. 
and I was an analyst looking at companies that we would then uh, tell the portfolio manager, this looks like a great company, why don't you put it in this person's portfolio? And so we had to make the case why this company was a great company. Why did you feel that there were deep flaws in the pricing structure? As it was the case when I was working for this firm that brokers would come in from different firms trying to sell us their ideas, their stocks. That's how they made money. They'd sell me a story on ABC company, I'd write all the notes down and analyze it individually, and if we were to buy the stock, the portfolio manager decided to buy the stock upon my recommendation, we'd buy it generally through that broker. The broker would then make a fixed commission, which was commissions had been fixed for 200 years, very high, it would cost for a small amount of money, it would cost you 4% to buy a stock or sell a stock, very high commission, very costly, and only the most wealthy people could really participate as such. The average person really couldn't. Maybe, maybe they could buy a mutual fund, but those were very high and expensive things to buy also. There were 9% to buy a mutual fund. It was, it was really a, a period of time when the financial industry was all about, I wouldn't say greed necessarily, but it was very expensive to buy and sell stocks, equities at that time. Uh, and, and you wanted to change that, yet you... And so you, I always thought it was terrible, and so the opportunity, a number of years later, uh, the SEC and the Justice Department and the Congress were looking at the rates that were fixed. You know, many industries were fixed for many years, whether it was pharmaceutical, whether it was retail, and, so, and, and the financial world was also in that basket of fixed rates. And so it was deregulated. Then in 1975, I saw it coming, started Schwab. And amid deregulation, you're thinking companies are going to drop their rates. Merrill Lynch actually well, raises I, theirs. I, that was obvious. I thought they were going to control the whole market. Well, they didn't. They, went, they raised their rates, and off they went. And we dropped our rates, and off we went. <laughs> but, but so you said before you're an awful storyteller, uh, an awful salesman. You didn't think, or you questioned whether there was a way for you to make a living in, in finance. Well, um, that's, why was like the big aha? Big aha to me was I thought there was a cadre of people, you know, a percentage, four or five percent of investors in the country who wanted to be independent investors. They didn't really need a salesman around to be their inspiration to buy a stock. They wanted to buy it on their own after good analyses and at a cheap price. Or buying it or selling it. So I thought there was a real business for a discount brokerage. And that was my aha that we didn't need salesmen. We did, in fact, we didn't want salesmen. We didn't want people to be incentivized by a big commission to go sell an idea. We wanted to have it all that savings, take the commission out of the thing, and just employ the people and have them paid a salary and a bonus based upon great service. So we were the first and still are. Uh, all our employees are salaried in compensation. No one makes a commission. In the early days of building Schwab, yeah. how many times did your uh, chief compliance officer come to you and ask you to mortgage the, take another mortgage out on the house? Well, that was because we were growing so quickly and uh, we needed capital and I couldn't, I couldn't uh, 
Wall Street wasn't available to me to raise money for me because we were building their competition. They didn't want more. They didn't want our competition. We, they didn't want to see us cut their rates. Yeah. So we had a tough time. So I had to go to friends, family, anybody who knew me who might uh, be considered having an investment in the company. How comfortable were you with that at the time? Oh, I was terrible at that. I was just, I hated it. I was not a good, did not do a good job of selling myself. And what's this I hear about your chief compliance officer on the way into work often would go in the alley and vomit? Oh, that was a, a story. I didn't even know about that. Someone told me that story. And uh, What so was the deal? I just heard that uh, his, that he got very ill because we had so many, we were growing so quickly uh, and there were so many different rules and so forth and that he had, he had a tough time uh, with our growth. And there's a point in which where you're looking forward nine months because the company's growing so fast and it wasn't just uh, a f another floor you need but a whole building. Whole building, um, yeah. I, what were the challenges that were created by just the explosive growth? Well, uh, obviously the financing of it, and then behind that, the technology that handled the volume, the very physical volume, whether it's phone calls or orders, or processing, all those things were quite complicated to say the least, and I w wasn't any expert at so I was having a certain amount of expertise I had to hire or have within the ranks of the company, and it was just bringing all that together it was a little symphony that was growing, but we didn't know how big the symphony was going to get, but it took a lot of players along the way. In those early days of building Schwab, what was the work schedule like from a time investment perspective? Well, that was a, probably a, a, good, a good thing that we were on the West Coast. We were in San Francisco, and uh, Wall Street would shut would close down at four o'clock uh, New York time, which was one our time. So we had all afternoon of to be able to clean up our back office issues, all our transactions, all the paperwork that needed to be to handled. So we always had a, a longer day than Wall Street did. So we started usually at six in the morning uh, when the market opened, and we worked a six or seven at night here. So we had many more hours to do our processing and to clean up the problems that we might have that occurred through the day. And so I think that was a great advantage being on the West Coast. And the other part was that we were very much a part of the technology that was unfolding, the new technology that was unfolding. And I was a very early adopter of the new technology, which then was permitted us to handle volumes and, and, and uh, ever-growing volumes. But so you're working from six to six. Um, Easily. Is that, is Easily. That, I was going to say, is that when your day ends? No, 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 no. So what's like, what dinner was with my family and I'd go back to work again. Till when? Oh, I would usually work until 10, 30 or something like that. Get how six does, or seven hours. How does that affect the, the personal life? Wasn't great. <laughs> wasn't great in those early years, but uh, I think the family understood. The, you know, it's different. The kids now, young parents, uh, which I really honor, they spent a lot of, more time with their kids and, than I ever did, and so that was 
Now I get to spend them with grandkids. Well, I was going to say, though, because I, I was surprised you wrote this in your book, and I read it. You said, by today's standards, I, I would not be considered or would no. not have been considered a good dad. No. Um, why do you feel that way? Well, I think life's emerged on, and it's different than what it was then. Uh, my family and my mom and dad didn't spend a lot of time with me either. I, I grew very independent, uh, which was probably good for me. Maybe not so good for my sister, who's a different story. Uh, but for me, it was great. And now today, uh, young parents, I see in my kids, they spend enormous amounts of great time with their children. There's a lot of benefit from that. Your uh, daughter, Carrie, says she thinks you have regrets on, yeah. on that front. Like I what? do. I do have regrets. And, but, you know, that's, those are little chunks of life that happen, and there are reasons why it happened. To, to what extent, though, do you think you could have had as much success building the company as you've had without family life suffering some? Well, I guess there, there had to be a give up, but there, I had no choice. I didn't have the resources to go any other way. So to me, my number one responsibility, I always felt as a parent, as a father, that uh, I had to provide the resources for a reasonable family life, with its school, education, food, shelter, all the basic fundamentals. That was my number one responsibility. It wasn't my, my number one responsibility wasn't making sure I went to the baseball game that afternoon with them. I felt guilty about not being at the baseball game, but I also thought it was absolutely essential I take care of the issue of what we had in terms of the company. Uh, five kids. 13 grandkids now. Yeah. Um, wh how much... Uh, I try says, to make it up to them now. That, that's, what, that's what Carrie said. Yeah, she right. said she thinks um, you're trying to make up for not being yeah. around as much back yeah. then with yeah. all the grandkids. Right. I have a little more free time now than I did then. What's it like having all the grandkids? Wonderful. I had lunch today with one of my uh, grandkids who's 24, and uh, he's going off and his career, not sure where he's going to go. Um, I encourage them to do whatever they want to do, whatever the passion is. So important. How would you best explain the role that your wife Helen's played in your life? Oh, she's been the rock of the, of the family, and she's been, her father was also, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, but, but a real entrepreneur too. He was in the oil and gas business in Texas and, and had ups and downs along the way, and uh, he understood my ups and downs as such. And I think he was comfortable when I told him 1972, I guess it was, that I was going to start this little business. And I, you know, probably most fathers would have said, are you kidding me? My daughter's married to you and you're starting this crazy business? You've never heard of it before? But he was supportive. Yeah, well, he was, yeah, he was supportive. And it worked out much beyond anyone's dreams. A trying time for the family centers around your daughter, Katie. Um, she was in a fire, um, I believe ends up being in a coma, potentially life-threatening. Um, what happened? Well, she was in a, I guess, a group party. They were in New York. She lived in New York at the time. And uh, I think some of the kids fell asleep, and the, uh, maybe all did, and fire spark or something got in a rug and a, one of these cheap rugs with a lot of oil in it and so she was 
caught in a smoke-filled room, uh, and one of the boys eventually died a week, couple days later, and she survived after six weeks in a coma. It was, it was really a very difficult thing for Helen and myself through that time period. But today she's happily married and has three wonderful young kids. At that time, um, what did the process of getting through it entail? Well, when the doctor I asked her, what's the chance of Katie going through this? The boy, the other boy had just died. And, I, and he said, about 50%. I said, are you kidding me? I, was, I thought it was 100. It's just a matter of getting, you know, getting the smoke out of your lungs. I didn't realize the severity of all that, and that put a lot of instant uh, understanding in my brain. <laughs> I think I went right down to the chapel, say a prayer. What was uh, the toughest part of that process? Well, she was in a coma. It was an induced coma when a fire victim like this, uh, and not knowing she was out, out for six weeks, and then. It was time, the healing of some of her burns. Uh, she had some burns that were, uh, they did uh, repair work on, and it was time for her to come out of the coma, and she did, and she, it's an amazing story. Here she was, she didn't know what happened the last six weeks. Oh, no idea. No idea, she was completely out. It was really a startling moment for everybody. What did that conversation entail, telling her? Well, just telling her what happened. Telling her what happened is a, it's a strange moment and in time. I understand uh, she, she was turning 30 around then, and yeah. for the 30th birthday party, you had, we had a uh, party. special guests, yeah, uh, we, the, the firefighters? We had the firefighters come. Oh, yeah, the, the captain of the, of the team that uh, saved Katie and, and pulled her out of there. and. Uh, Surgeons and all that stuff. It was really a fun party at the, it was in New York City at the medical hospital. So I want to run through um, a handful of notable moments from your career and that seems to be, you know, key moments in the, the growth of Schwab. Uh, the first one being um, it's the early 1980s. Uh, you end up selling the company to uh, Bank of America. I want you to take me to the moment where you're going into a board meeting, you are not only Bank of America's youngest shareholder, or I'm sorry, biggest shareholder, but youngest member of the board by far, and here you are breaking with the CEO. Um, take me into the room, the setting, what you said, and the reaction. The B of A was probably at the time the most recognizable bank really in the country or in the world for that matter, Bank of America, you can imagine. And you can imagine the boardroom was all the way from this wall all the way down to that wall, which is probably <laughs> 100 feet down there. Uh, a board table that was with 27 or 28 people plus staff around the sides. And we each had in front of us these leather-bound books and so forth. And I'd been on the board for a, a couple of years by that time, like getting somewhat comfortable, really never totally comfortable. Uh, and by that time, the moment you're speaking about is when I made a, put forth the idea that the company needs to do a number of things to get itself back in action again. We'd suffered, the regulators were unhappy with us, we were losing money, we were, our loan loss ratios were 
going crazy. Uh, we're losing loans to different parts of the country, and we had to we had become a more efficient bank. Uh, the bank was probably had twice as many employees per dollar of business than most other banks. But the company had a monopoly in California for 100 years, not 100 years, what it was, 50 years anyway. And so it grew into the situation of a lot of excess, uh, people fat and so forth. So I stand up there and go through a litany of things. It took me about 40 minutes. I'd prepared for this for about two months. And, scariest moment oh, of your life. Oh, scariest moment. Because I, and, and I upset so many people in the room here who agreed with me. And who, who were huge yeah, yeah. names, you know, right? Huge names. They're chairmans of Transamerica at the time. Chairmans of one guy had just come off the Federal Reserve Board. Another fellow had been Pan American Airlines. That was a big airlines, the biggest at the time. Uh, big department stores, Levi Strauss. All the big names, well, that particular year was 1986, the one we're speaking about. It was the biggest names in San Francisco and in the country, frankly. And so me, standing up there, going on about this thing, I was right. I was absolutely right. They killed me with their thoughts. <laughs> what did they say? Uh, well, it was sort of tabled, and there was a lot of mumbling, and then it was sort of the beginning of, of the end, basically. It got into the papers, and all this stuff, and I was this maverick, rabble-rouser, blah, blah, blah. And so the regulators, they were really unhappy also. As it turned out, they came a little bit later on in the scene, uh, a few months later. Uh, two months elapsed by, and I finally decided I had to resign. I just couldn't stand what was happening here. And uh, then began my approach to consider buying the company back. And if I could just go back momentarily. So you're walking into that meeting. D describe the nerves and the, the yips that uh, you developed. I don't want to describe it. It's just, it was too painful to do that. Really? <laughs> oh, Still it today? It was really painful. Oh my God. Took every ounce of energy I had. It was what, not, not a happy day. What I, about it today is still painful? Yeah, I would think about it and go through that process. You know, it was painful to have 27 of these very famous, upstanding people of California and me taking them on, all on. They all came, they all, it was a fancy place to come. They had great lunches, they had great, you know, the, the compensation for being on the board. I didn't get compensated, that made a difference because I was an inside director. But they were, you know, it was, a, it was an honor to be on that board. I mean, you were at the highest level of esteem when you were on that board, on the Bank of America board, let me tell you. And so I got there a different way. <laughs> And uh, it was it was a really a gutsy thing. Uh, and I think you were concerned that they could strip you from actually running well, your did. own company. They, they did. They actually uh, they didn't strip me. They they uh, we were had a board. We they fired all us insiders as members of the board of, of the Schwab company. And so that went on for a few months, and then I began doing what I needed to do, which I described in the book actually. How key to regaining your company's independence was you retaining ownership of your name and likeness? It was probably about 100%. I, you know, when they 
I, I told him how unhappy we were. And as it turned out, the bank had to liquidate a lot of their assets because they were having such losses. And so I wanted them to sell Schwab. And they eventually decided to sell Schwab. And I said, you know, they came to me about this. And I said, you could sell Schwab to anybody you wanted to, but you can't sell me. So I prepared to buy the company back and pay a fair price for all that. And one of the challenges that created, and correct me if I'm wrong, but w when the conversation first started about the bank acquiring Schwab, their stock was $24 a share. Yeah. By the time you were trying to get out, it was uh, $11 well, it finally went down share. to below 10 Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I sold a lot of it between 17 and 16 saved a little bit of capital, which I used all to buy back the company when I turned around to buy it back. And one of the things that was really exciting was what you did for the the employees who were also yeah, hurt by it, that with the wars. were really somewhat screwed in the, in the thing that it, the, the bank stock never went up, never went up after we, and, and I always felt, in fact, I put a, a sort of a preliminary lawsuit together. I was, if I had to go down that way to sue him, I was thinking about doing that. And I showed him what I was, all the work we had done, financial analysis on that thing. So sell it to me, sell it to somebody else without me, take on the lawsuit, you had these choices. So I had different law firms to help me out on three different law firms. And that was pretty interesting. I thought it was a good strategy. And fortunately we came out the peaceful thing. They sold to me, they got six times what they had paid me for originally in terms of Only return. Only a few years prior. And, right. and four or five years of effort. And so they should have been happy. I guess they were happy. Elaborate if you don't mind on the warrants though, because Yeah, the um, warrants was important uh, to also you in, to the, in the transaction put aside 15% of the company through uh, sort of warrants. Warrants are, are basically options, long-term options that I gave to every employee based upon the loss that they had between a $24 stock, that, which we got in, uh, originally, and the, the $17, whatever that loss was, I calculated it all and made it up to them through the opportunity to buy Schwab stock uh, at sometime in the next 10 years that would be favorable to the employee. Uh, it's the St. Francis Hotel. You just regained independence as a company. You go out to speak to 1,500 plus employees. I think that's the happiest moment of one of the happiest days of your life. I'm really happy, let me tell you. Describe what you remember from that. Oh, well, it was very exciting for all of us. Uh, we had a big party that night, and I think the next night I spoke to the Harvard Business School Club or something about this great moment that we had, and it was terrific and all that stuff. That was, that was March of 1987. Little did I know what was going to come later in 87. Uh, Why was that a watershed year for the company? Well, as I say in the book, it was a storm that came in that nobody knew. I mean, we bought the company back and we leveraged up for the moment in time, which I didn't like the leverage, the borrowed money. I wanted to pay it back very quickly, but then very quickly I sort of made the assessment we had to go public, pay back the debt as fast as we could which we did, and, uh, but it was exciting because the opportunities for us as a company were much more vast than we were under the wings of the B of A. It was a little bit stifling under the B of A as it turned out. And the market's crashing. 
Well, the market didn't crash really until three or four months later, but then it did crash. Unbeknownst to us, I mean, it just happened. We were then our IPO price that we went out at, uh, gosh, at $15 a share, I think it immediately went down to six or seven. It was not a, not a happy time period. So we went from elation, deep, happy moments to deep depression, all in a matter of six months. It was a, it was a real rodeo. In the dot-com crash of 2000, I think the company's trading volume drops by 70%. Yeah. Why by mid-2001 are you still concerned that the company's on the line? Well, by then we knew you know, we were okay financially, we just had to contract. And that's one of the things that's the most difficult thing is contracting a company. You have these wonderful employees you've hired, you've trained and so forth, and, uh, and hopefully promising them a great future, but all of a sudden the stock market itself goes, like that. nothing you do about it, and you had to retrench. Talking about 2002, 2001, 2002, we had to retrench big time. Uh, my wife and I put up a bunch of money to let kids that came put their hard-earned heart into our company. We, we had to fire them. So we gave them a stipend to go back to school, learn another trade, go to nursing, go to teaching, wherever they wanted to go. And we put money up for them to go back to schooling. How tough is that to go through? It's wrenching. It's personally wrenching when you have to go through that because you know, employees, we have, at least in my case, a, a sense of loyalty, a sense of commitment, sense of obligation to someone that puts their hard-earned time and thinking and personality, all their pers persona into the company. We owe them something back. Mid-2004, your then CEO comes to you and says he thinks the two of you should consider selling the company. Your reaction to that and how it impacted your view of him? I was completely shocked. I thought he was in some emotional state that I didn't quite understand. I never would have thought of that. I was never ever in my, I told him, we'll never sell in this company. I don't care what. This, we're not, we did that once with the B of A. We're not doing it again, even if we were rough, rough times. And how quickly in that moment do you realize, oh, oh very the change quickly, has to be made? Very quickly. The, Actually, within a couple months, the board came to me and said, uh, the CEO at the time, uh, I don't, we don't think he can continue to have the confidence of the board, and we think he needs to go. And they said, would you, would you come back as CEO? I was chairman, of course. And uh, I said, obviously no problem, I'd come back. So the next day, uh, we had to uh, take on the CEO at the time and, and fire him. And it was, that was not a pleasant time for anybody. Firing anybody is no fun, but it was the right thing to do. Describe what that's like for you, though. Here you are, 67 years old, and all of a sudden you're the CEO <laughs> again. And, and where, where did you think you'd be at well, that place in life? I thought it'd be more time on the golf course. Right. Uh, I had to forget golf for a number of months, for, for a year, basically. It's like if you've ever had the sense, you've ever been around a fire hose, I mean, a fire engine with a hose, 
It's like having four of those hoses in your mouth. U.S. presidents, uh, which ones over the years have you met? Oh, gosh. Uh, I met most of them. Reagan was, in fact, I was on his economic transition team in 1980 when he was elected. Uh, helped out with a fellow by the name of Mike Boskin, who's the ended up becoming an economic advisor. And uh, so I got to know him. I didn't ever get to know uh, Clinton. Um, he wasn't my cup of tea at the time. Certainly, I've gotten to know most of the Republican. You might guess that I'm, yes, I'm a Republican as a conservative guy. How about the best time you ever had with one? I've not spent a lot of personal time with any of them. Uh, professional time. Even President Bush? President Bush, yes, but, uh, well, I spent one night at the White House. That was fun. Uh, Lincoln bedroom on Valentine's Day. How'd you Day. know about that? Try to do the research. That's not published, is it? <laughs> well, anyway, my wife and I spent uh, an evening there with uh, Laura and, and George Bush and uh, had a great time, another couple. Uh, we sat up in the special room above the White House there. We each had a couple near beers and, uh, you know, he'd given up all alcohol. And, so we all were drinking near beer, shooting the breeze about uh, some of the issues at the time. Whether well, it was Iraq was certainly front and center. Uh, and some of the other issues about things. And we, we had a, a lovely time, actually. But he was a great guy, and uh, been, I've been friends ever since. Uh, everybody's favorite topic to ask you about is President Trump. Uh, what do you think of him? I love his policies. I love his policies. He's certainly about pro-America, and I'm, I'm clearly 100% there. What about the policies do you like? Well, the policies that re revolve around the taking what we have as a great country, great economics, and creating opportunity for every factor, every person in the, in the country. Uh, I like the fact that he's taken many of our lower parts of society and brought them up in terms of employment and opportunity. Uh, I love that part of the thing. Issues right now dealing with some of the difficulties dealing with communist countries like China and a trade with them is not, it's different because they don't understand a, a democratic capitalist system. They understand about making money, but they want to, it's controlled by the, by the Communist Party. What about what you would disagree with him on or in terms of stuff that he's done? Tweaking at different ends of things, I would probably do things. But so much of this has to do with having uh, a relationship with Congress. And, and the fact that we have a divided government is really an impossible situation. I think it would be for anybody. It, it allows for no compromises. It allows for no decision making. And it's just fighting all the time. How much do you think the tweeting gets in the way of policy or? Well, I, I mean, I, at the very beginning, I was sort of negative on it, but now it's his only way of he getting his own personal voice out. If it, it went in and went through the New York Times, they wouldn't, there would be, no one ever read what he said because it would be someplace on the 14th page of the New York Times. This way he gets to say what he, what he thinks and means. And in some ways it, it's, it's too bad, but that's sort of the modern communication methodology, I guess, is uh, uh, he takes control of his, what he thinks, and he's willing to change, I think. He's changed a number of viewpoints. He might have been 
look extreme on this thing, extreme on that thing, but I think that's uh, probably a form of communication that we're going to have to deal with for the next 50 years. He obviously has this boisterous personality. Oh. What's he like behind closed doors or like in, in a more private setting? Well, he's, he's more thoughtful and listens to you. you give your point of view and he'll have a different point of view on the thing and have a discussion about it. Uh, he's not unreasonable. Art. Yeah. Uh, That's a passion of mine. How'd you get into it? Well, I've always enjoyed art. I enjoyed going to art museums. I always thought art to me was sort of a connection with entrepreneurs. Artists have a way of expressing their view through some form on the wall or however, sculpture, whatever it might be. And they have a very independent people, uh, generally speaking. And so I thought, you know, in terms of my business, I thought that, you know, artists can do it, we can do it. So if we have ideas, we want to do it, we can do it. And so it's all part of the freedom thing. We don't see great art being created in communist countries. It's all about the human expression of br the brain, the creativity, the innovation, all the things that the human brain is capable of doing. And it's one of the great things about us humans is that we have this sense that we can use our brains. And that's what I love about capitalism as such is, as we know, it comes from the word caputa, head in, in Latin. It's about creativity. It's about all the things that, whether it's video doing or whether it's art form. I started collecting art as a young kid. Um, and my wife enjoys art. And so we've I ended up being the chairman of the Museum of Modern Art here in San Francisco, built a new building, all those kinds of things, and, and created a wonderful collection for ourselves, which most of which will end up going to a museum. You have museum quality pieces. What are some of your favorites? Oh, goodness, uh, some of the artists, you mean? Uh, I think uh, certainly Warhol's one of them, Gerhard Richter. I mean, some of the really fancy names now, we've been very lucky to pick some of those up along the way. I mean, through your hard work. You well, know? hard right. work. And some is through collecting, too. Sometimes you might have a, a three or a four of that particular artist and you want to get an eight, nine, or a 10, you trade up and maybe pay a little extra money. Some wonderful Pollocks that we've had. Uh, uh, so we've been very lucky in our collecting. How often are you buying and selling art? Uh, my wife is doing most of that now. Carrie uh, uh, says I've that always, might be why you're so into it, <laughs> because uh, Ellen likes it. She, she, she knows it much more in depth than I do. Uh, I always come into the transaction and I look at the thing and make sure certain things are according to my, my sensitivities. Like, like what will you look for? Oh, the quality of the thing and uh, is it museum quality? What are we going to do with it? Is a young artist that's coming up that's wonderful too. We have a lot of young artists that are coming up. Some, some make it, some don't make it. Uh, but it's, it, you only want to buy art that's pleasing to you. Frankly, that's the number one thing about buying art. Does it, I mean, living with art in your house is fantastic. 
do you view it as investment? I never did that much early on. I thought it was a, just a way to enhance our living experience. As it turned out, uh, over the years, we were had a pretty good eye, and we bought some great art and had some good advice along the way, and we bought art that turned into <laughs> incredibly financial successes as such. Not to our advantage, because we'll probably give it all to the museum. I mean, was there one over the years that you've gotten that's turned out the best? Oh, I, we, fortunately, we have a, a, a few, but one, one in particular, I'll never forget, back when uh, Japan had their massive uh, economic thing in the 1990s, and then their economy collapsed. At the time, in the 90s, the Japanese were going to buy and own everything in the world, every manufacturing company, every resort, every piece of art, you name it, they were, their economy went into the tank. And so in late 90s, we went over to one of the Japanese bank who had lent money on art. And they'd taken the art back and they had it all down in their vault. And I uh, remember we bought this bacon, uh, Francis Bacon. And it was a wonderful piece. Well, I think it went up in value 20 times in, in that. <laughs> those numbers of years, it was really incredible. Lucky, yeah, but it'll go to a museum too. If I could, in the last couple minutes I have with you, I wanted to, to ask you about charity. Um, what did your dad teach you about generosity? Well, early on I was very impressed when we go to the church on Sunday, the little guy would come around with a basket asking for a contributions. And so my dad was always first, he'd, put a dollar in, a paper dollar, or five dollars, whatever it was, and other people were putting quarters in. I thought, gee, Dad, you didn't have to put a whole dollar in there. Dollars are pretty, he did it anyway. And it was important to him. Why was it important to him? Well, he was brought up as relatively a religious person and uh, always made a point of attending church and so forth. And so that was all part of my absorption of my upbringing, and so I always thought that that was something I should be considered of as giving, giving back to important institutions that meant a lot to me. Why does the responsibility of wealth worry you? Well, I think there is a huge responsibility. I think government policy puts it together. You can deduct certain contributions. That's a pretty important incentive. And I think it was done there for a reason, because those who are knocking out of the ballpark, so to speak, uh, have a real obligation to give back to the really critical things, whether it's hospitals, museums, um, you name it, things that are important to lots of people, parks, all that kind of thing, important to everybody. How do you go about figuring out what to do with the, the rest of your fortune? I, I think what you do, you can't figure it all out, so people like me set up foundations that sort of perpetuate uh, giving to certain sectors of the economy that you really think are important, whether it be hospitals, uh, centers on dyslexia, dyslexia research, that kind of thing at UCSF, uh, which I support. Um, homelessness issues here in San Francisco are a big problem, and so given a lot of money to help make a dent in that. 
And I think you'll have educated somewhere in the neighborhood of a million teens uh, on financial literacy through the Boys and Girls that's, Club. That's a big deal to me, not only the Boys and Girls Club, but beyond that too. My daughter is very involved in that, Carrie, on terms of the Boys and Girls Club, but I've set up a foundation for economic education and financial independence as such. And, Which uh, is relatively new. Relatively new. In fact, we have a, the first class going to be, which I funded at Stanford, called uh, uh, you know Introduction to Financial Decisions, and uh, that'll be for freshmen. Any anyone going to school at Stanford can take that course. But so many schools need this capability because our population is clearly undereducated in financial matters. And frankly, you know, in this society that we have, we all are completely uh, responsible for our own personal success. Um, I mean, some people who simply aren't capable of it, but 90% of us, 95%, have to think through these things on our own, but sometimes we need education about it. So financial literacy is one of the things that we have little education about in schools. So my hope is that we make a dent in and making that more available. And if schools were going to teach it, um, what do you think, you know, at its core is the fundamental lesson or are the fundamental well, lessons what that money is, well, why you have it, and why it's important to save some? Because uh, clearly you work for 40 years and you're completely responsible when you get that moment in time when the paycheck is not coming in. You've got to live off two things. Your Social Security, which isn't going to complete the job, and your personal savings, and hopefully your 401k, whatever it might have happened, your IRA, all those things will help out, but a lot of people don't understand what that all means and why why it is that they're looking at the responsibility at age 25 and, they, oh, hell, let's have another coffee, you know, let's have another night out. And 30 comes and 35 comes and they haven't done anything. All of a sudden they've lost all that compounding time of growth and they're now 40 or 45, it's tough to catch up. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Charles Schwab. To see more of my chat with Chuck, including putting lessons from the billionaire entrepreneur, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.